Nine days later, I re-enter the world. Now I am really, truly broke. The fuck is wrong with me? How dumb can you get? I've never been this bad before. When I was young, I lived to party, get drunk, snort coke, smoke pot, play loud, and fuck chicks. The kind of drinking I'm doing now is different. Self-devouring and ugly. More sinister. Painful. And mature in a bad way. The way a tumor starts as a harmless gathering of aberrant cells and matures into something that will kill you if you don't get help. And even if you do, no guarantees. Yeah, yeah, that was crazy. So that's that was where I'm at now. Now at that point, I'm homeless. I went from millionaire to homeless person. Mission accomplished. That was Sam Heron, and this is The Share Podcast. It's time for The Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, Oh. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Share Podcast. And today, let me start out by saying you do not want to miss this episode. Today, we have Sam Heron joining us on the show. He is the author of Street Life Fragments, where he photographs his firsthand experience of life on the streets as a man who is a former millionaire and whose personal tragedies and illness cast him into extreme poverty and ultimately into homelessness. This story is an absolute cocaine rock star, rock bottom interview. To date, it's one of my favorites. It's powerful, it's gripping, and it's an absolute miracle that Sam is alive today. Once again, you do not want to miss this episode. So let's dive into Sam's story. But first, if you have not yet rated and reviewed the Share Podcast, please, one of the best ways to help support the show is to go to iTunes, leave us a five-star rating and a review, and that helps catapult us up the ratings on iTunes, which will make it easier for more and more people to find the Share Podcast. Now, in the past, many of you have asked, hey, oh, how can I help support the show? Well, I'm going to keep it simple for you. The first way is by donating via PayPal or Bitcoin. And of course, I want to thank all of our listeners who have been generously donating every month to the Share Podcast. Make no mistake about it, you guys are making a huge difference. But again, we can always use more, and now you can even send us donations using Bitcoin. So if you go to the website, www.thesharepodcast.com, on the top right corner, there's a donate button. Click on that button, and it'll take you to the page where you can donate either by PayPal or by Bitcoin. On a weekly basis, I have over 5,000 listeners every week who listen to the Share Podcast. So if 100 of you guys would send me $5 a month or more, there are a few listeners that are sending $10, $20, and even $50 every month, that would completely support the show from beginning to end. So for those of you who have the wherewithal to send me $5, either by PayPal or by Bitcoin, then by all means, please feel free to donate now. We could really use the support. Also, when you're purchasing stuff on Amazon, there are those of you that are still clicking on the Amazon link on the Share Podcast website before doing their purchases on Amazon. But again, there are thousands of you listening. If each and every one of you could just remember to go to the Share website, click on the Amazon button before you do your shopping, that is also going to make a tremendous difference for us financially. So I haven't been one to emphasize it in the past, right? But now we've got a solid listener base 
I know you guys love the show. I know you guys get a lot out of it. There are those of you, just like in the meetings, that are newcomers. The money's tight. Keep listening. The show will always be for free. The Share Podcast Private Accountability Group will always be for free. But for those of you who can, kick in a couple of bucks. Help us out here. And not to forget the Share Podcast Private Accountability Group. Again, it's growing like crazy. Guys, go to the Share Podcast, www.thesharepodcast. Click on the button that says join the Facebook private group. For those of you that are in the private accountability group, you know how vital and important that has become. There's over 1,500 members in there. If you don't want to go to meetings, if you have problems connecting with people, if you need something more than just the podcasts and are not ready to cross over into meetings or some other structured program, then the private accountability group is perfect for you. Jump in there, make comments, ask questions, or just read the posts. There are so many people out there that have the same questions that you have All you have to do is just read those and then read all the follow-up answers and responses that come. And make sure to subscribe to my weekly newsletter so you know every single time a brand new episode is launched. And of course, if you have any questions, just email me, o at thesharepodcast.com, and I'll get back to you as soon as possible. So now a quick message from our sponsors, and then on to the show. Would you like to join a free, anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Then go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. And don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction, as well as to the family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line, which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can easily be found at www.sobernation.com. Sober Nation is putting recovery on the map. Hey, Sam, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure, Ro. So how are you feeling today? I feel really good. Thanks for asking. How are you? I'm doing wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much. All right. So folks, today we have Sam Heron joining us on the Share Podcast. And Sam is about to publish his first book titled Street Life Fragments, Stories and Photographs from Homeless America. Sam is a former millionaire whose personal tragedies, illness, and bad luck cast him into extreme poverty and homelessness. His firsthand experience of life on the streets at age 50 forces Sam to confront the dark side of the American dream at an age when recovery is improbable. Through the lenses of a pawn shop camera, he discovers a side of humanity he once feared and ignored. The insights gained through his art, along with heartfelt interviews with people suffering under the same conditions, help him transcend into a man with a selfless sense of purpose, compassion, empathy, and service. Did I get that about right, Sam? I believe so. (laughs) Touched on some of the key points there? (laughs) In a a nutshell, that would be the the elevator pitch, as it's known as. Good. All right. Well, I'll let you expand on that as we move forward. Fair enough? That's fair enough. All right. Well, before we talk about the book, let's talk about what you do normally in your daily routine, including recovery. Fantastic. Well, uh, I uh, I work for a long-term adult uh, recovery facility uh, with people with co-occurring issues, uh, issues of um, mental health, 
alcohol and drug um, use and um, poverty. Um, a lot of them are, are in the um, on court paper. And um, so that's very fulfilling. So uh, currently the vast majority of my day revolves around my work and, and preparing for it and being well-rested and take care of myself so I can be of service to them. Excellent. Excellent. Now, do you have a regular meeting routine? Are you still, you know, are you active in 12-step recovery? Well, to be honest, um, since I've moved to Lincoln, Nebraska, where I currently live and work, uh, my work takes up an awful lot of my time. So I'm not as active as I would uh, like to be. But uh, generally speaking, I'm, I'm very active in it and uh, more in a listening role than a speaking role as I am today. But uh, yeah, I get a lot out of it and uh, give a lot of credit to 12-step for uh, getting me to where I am today as a, a sober uh, individual in recovery. Beautiful, beautiful. And how much clean time do you have? When is your anniversary date? Well, thankfully, I've got a couple of years now and my uh, date well, it's January 17th. Uh, whether or not that was the actual date uh, remains to be seen, but there was at some point a piece of paperwork that I think was intake paperwork when I got into recovery that said January 17th, and that's what I latched on to, and that's what I go by. Okay, what year was that? Uh, that had been a couple of years ago, so um, two years clean now. All right, excellent, excellent. And so how old were you the first time you drank or used drugs, and more importantly, how did they make you feel? Well, I came to the party, so to speak, um, fairly late in terms of kids that get involved in those things, but early in, in terms of how I ramped up the use. I didn't really start uh, any of that until I was probably 17, I would say. Um, I was actually walking from my uh, high school a couple blocks up the street to a thing that we had that was a career center where we'd do metal shop, a wood shop, all those archaic things we used to do back in the 70s. Right. And uh, I was a nerdy kind of uh, art geek kid, and I was walking with two of my nerdy friends. But one of the kids that was with us is kind of a street tough, and uh, he passed me a joint, and I hit on it. I have no idea why. My friends looked at me aghast, and they literally couldn't believe it. They're like, you just hit on a joint. And I'm like, God, I did, didn't I? And, and it just got going from there because I was a very uh, introverted, uh, geeky kid. And, and I was like, yeah, I did that. And then it, it ramped up from there. I, uh, I couldn't stand the taste of alcohol. And I never dreamt that I would ever start drinking alcohol. But eventually, you know, like all young men of that age, uh, women became of great interest to me. And so uh, I went where they were and where they were were the parties and the parties were wild and violent and it was the 70s and I lived in a town that was pretty crazy and went to a school that was uh, not the greatest and so that's kind of where the drinking started ramping up and I hated it at first but then I loved it after that and the feeling as with many it just uh, let me finally escape myself and um, so yeah I ran with that for a while. All right well Sam Man, you are all warmed up, buddy. So it's time for me to turn this show over to you. Time for you to share your story, the battle against drugs and alcohol, the wreckage it caused in your life when you hit rock bottom, and finally your journey into recovery up until today. So Sam, take it away, buddy. Well, thanks, so. Well, I guess we'll go ahead and delve into things uh, from that point. So um, I'm in school and I finally start my drinking career. And uh, I was a very introverted kid at that point, and uh, that will uh, allow me to digress just a bit. Um, I was born George Walker. Uh, I'm the bastard child of the 101st Airborne, as I like to say. And I was born in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. I was adopted by a uh, 
uh, U.S. Army Special Forces gentleman and his wife, uh, my mom and dad. And uh, soon after that, we moved to Germany, where I lived for quite some time until my dad developed what I believe to be a service-related uh, cancer. And we returned stateside. He passed away after a battle, an extended battle with cancer. And uh, at that point, my mom, who was very much in love with him, uh, kind of lost it a little bit. And we we moved in with her parents, my grandparents, and my grandfather, who was affectionately uh, known. I was uh, I came to find out later as the meanest man in the CB and Q railroad, and it was a deserved reputation. But thankfully, at that point, he had stopped. Uh, he had stopped drinking, so that was good because uh, while there was uh, things in his behavior. Uh, berating my mom and grandma, things like that, that, that weren't, uh, weren't very gentlemanly. Uh, he had quit drinking, which is good because apparently the last time he drank, he almost strangled my mom to death until my, uh, my grandmother wielded some blunt object that left a lifelong scar in his head. Wow. Um, yeah, she had returned 10 minutes late from a date and he was apparently drunk and all his, uh, former Marine, uh, baggage kicked in and I think there's a story behind what made him kind of the guy he was and and while he was a decent man he was he was a very rough guy and uh yeah so he didn't respond too well and my grandmother took matters into her own ha own hands thankfully so my mom was uh, alive to bring me up but um the the home life and when you're a kid you really don't know the difference you know, your family could be the most dysfunctional family around and you really, you really wouldn't know any different because that's the only family, you know. So for me, it was, it was a, a normal. normal upbringing. Yeah. You know what I mean? But, uh, in reality, there was some, there was some problems and my mom, uh, I believe suffered from depression her, her entire life and undiagnosed and untreated. And uh, I think a lot of that rubbed off on me. So there again, <clears throat> you know, uh, how how much of how much of that rubs off on a kid uh, that remains to be seen. I'm sure the clinicians have uh, discussed that ad nauseum, but um, I believe it makes a profound effect. And so, with the combination of being adopted and um, whatever, however a child is affected in utero uh, when a woman is carrying a child that they're going to end up giving up, um, that led to abandonment issues and 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 my own share of uh, depression. So by the time I got into school. Uh, I was pretty introverted and pretty depressed. So alcohol uh, and drugs gave me the um, gave me the ability, the social lubricant I needed to to meet the women that I was uh, so interested in as a young man. Yep. Uh, do you know how that goes? Yes, I do. That's what we do when we're young. <laughs> yep. So now I'm I'm officially a, a partier, and uh, it is the '70s, and so it was all about Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath and. And Ted Nugent and uh, loud music, and uh, I dove straight into that. But as uh, you know, the the town that I grew up in was a little rough, and the school was very rough, and the parties were just you know looking back on it, they were just bad shit nuts. I mean, you had <laughs> you had a combination of people carousing around, uh, hitting on members of the opposite sex, while beating the you know beating the snot out of each other. Every two minutes a fight would break out. It was crazy. And I mean, people were plastered on, on you know, acid does not mix well with uh, bad temperament. So it was it was really an insane environment. But uh, but I was in it and uh, I always seemed to kind of. 
be able to coast the middle ground. You know, I was a quiet enough person. I was a nice enough person. So I was managed to put myself in relation to uh, close contact with uh, complete chaos and and I always managed to get through it unscathed. So um, that was a talent that I learned early on. But by the same token, you know, I was a, I was officially uh, uh, on the wild side, so to speak. So anyway, that all continued, and um, I went deeper and deeper into it. Uh, eventually, started uh, selling a few things here and there in the in the in the drug related category uh, without a uh, license. I was not a licensed pharmacist. Let's just say that. And that allowed, that, that allowed me to that allowed me to get the hot cars and things I wanted, and it allowed me to get a little closer to the women I was interested in, oh. and that was my main preoccupation anyway. And and that was a lifelong preoccupation until a few years ago. And not that I'm not interested in women anymore, but just not quite the way I was then. So uh, again, you know, the '70s. I, I I believe every every year probably has its challenges in regard to. Uh, to young people growing up and uh but i think the 70s were unique because uh at that time it was it was just that lifestyle was a little more acceptable i think um i think now that people realize the damage that's done uh not so much but back then it was all about going ahead and 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 exploring exploring drugs and exploring uh other states of reality and and acid and things like that and i was big into it i remember it got to the point where I could eat eight or 10 hits of acid and, and function with no problem and do that for, you know, a couple of weeks on end. Oh, so it was crazy. Oh man, it was crazy. That sounds like it would, I mean, how do you do that? And, and how long does that last? You know, you, you, after a while you get kind of used to it. So again, I mean, you, you know, either you completely freak out and completely melt down or you find a way to function on it. And it just got to the point where I could literally do acid day after day and just do large amounts and go to sleep. It was, it was crazy. And that I mean, crazy. this was stuff. Yeah, that's crazy. Right. And it was stuff that would take you to an alternate reality. I mean, it was really like the, uh, it was like the, uh, jelly projections and the, the pink Floyd shows back in San Francisco or the uh, grateful dead. It was absolutely nuts. But I mean, there have been times where I was so high that it was literally like one of those, uh, 60s uh, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the venue but the venue in uh, San Francisco where they would uh, do the, no the San Francisco um, it's escaping me uh, Bill Graham was the promoter that used to put the shows on but they had the projected things that were like if you took a, a petri dish and put jelly in it and then you kind of put a light underneath it and projected it behind the band that thing well that would be how your reality would be you would literally be seeing that when you were that high and <laughs> I remember doing MDA one night. <clears throat> I had run sound for a heavy metal band, uh, which I, I'll get into that a little bit more later. But um, they were backing up a group that was real popular back then called Queensryche. And I had uh, bought some MDA to sell. And uh, I kept a little pure bag of it for myself that wasn't uh, stepped on. And I did some of that. And it just came on so hard that it was just a mad dash to get home. And during the process of it, I got so high that, you know, I literally went to where my reality was that jelly uh, projection show. It was just like that. And, and, and you know, oftentimes you're like, yeah, you really don't get that high. But you will get that high if you do enough pure MDA. That is a fact and i would not recommend that 
Oh, well, you were doing seven, eight hits at a time, right? Oh, well, with the acid, seven or eight, ten hits, no problem. But the MDA was a whole nother thing, too, because it was it was pure stuff. And as the guy who used to sell it to me that I would sell to other people would say, you know, the dog is in town. And, and it was a wicked, wicked drug. I mean, that is some hardcore stuff. That's a real drug. And it is nothing to fuck with. So, um, yeah, that will put you in another reality. And I think that the night I'm referring to, I think it almost killed me. You know, I'm, I was really amazed when I woke up the next day because I thought I was going to die that night. And quite frankly, there were many other times to come where I'm very lucky to be alive. And that's the grace of God for sure. So um, anyway, so I'm, I'm in school. It's it's all about music for us at that time. And, and I was really getting into it. It was a complete escape for me, you know, between the drugs and the booze and the music. I was able to get away from my problems. Um, one of those problems would be when I was in junior high and, uh, and I, I guess I want to delve into this for the first time because, uh, it took me many years to kind of even remember it. I think I'd repress the memory, but a lot of the clients that uh, I work with in my job at the recovery facility, um, many of those folks are suffering from core trauma and, uh, we do trauma informed care. And, and so that's, that's something that, um, I'll touch on for that purpose. And, and for that matter, as long as I'm on the subject of our clients, uh, I know a couple of the clients will be listening to this podcast and I'm sure ones in the future will be too. So, uh, I just want to say to them that what you're doing is very brave and, uh, I, I respect you greatly for taking the journey you're currently on. So at any rate, when I was in junior high, I had a school counselor and, uh, that, um, well, quite frankly, I was molested by my school counselor who was later uh, moved to another state and was later convicted and sentenced to a long stint in prison for molesting many kids. Man. Yeah. Jesus. Right. With counselors like that. I mean. God. Yeah, totally. Just it's all it always it, it never sits well. You know, it's always one of those things where you just you just get angry, you know, and, and, and you wonder, you know, it's as fucked up as it is. You wonder what kind of fucked up things that happened to them that that would lead them to do those kind of things because it just you know as as a as somebody who respects children who has children you know what I mean it's hard to fathom doing those kind of things. Oh, without question, without question, it's almost assured that that person you know had a real rough road of their own, and so um, I'm I'm sympathetic to that fact. And again, I mean, I, I endlessly at work, I endlessly deal with uh, the profound effects that trauma causes on people that um, I don't know. I came from a generation where it was like, you know, my family being uh, German, uh, hardworking German folks, you know, you didn't even go to the doctor, let alone get therapy. Right. But, uh, you know, trauma was just glossed over and uh, it was you were just supposed to suck it up. But it, honestly, you know, trauma will will mess person up for years and drugs and alcohol are uh, just the first place that people run to once they get a load of that um, there's no need to process what they've been through and if they're fortunate enough to get into therapy that's great but um, so for me there was no therapy and um, so after that happened um, well I shouldn't put it quite like that because uh, eventually it had such a profound effect on me that I would not go to school and it got to the point where child protective services was getting involved and everyone was like, you know, what is wrong with this guy? You know, I would not go to school. And, um, at, I finally found myself in a uh, psychiatrist office 
because basically it was getting to that point where, you know, I, I just literally wouldn't go right. and nobody could figure out. I couldn't articulate it. Um, I, I almost, I guess, probably kind of repressed it even very quickly as a defense mechanism. So I found myself in a psychiatrist's office and that, um, it took a while for me to open up, but once I did, it was, uh, it was just a blessing. It was of immeasurable help. And I finally got back into school. Um, but by then I was extremely damaged and I was not doing well. I was a bright, bright kid. I was a gifted student and my grades were suffering and they never got back on track. <clears throat> At one point I was doing so well that I had interest. Uh, people were like, you know, you're bound for the Ivy League, and and I had my father's side of the family resided out in Connecticut, and I'd I had already um, made visits to Yale and things, and so there was that conversation was already going. But then my grades just went to shit, and I just dove headlong into drugs and alcohol, and that's where I stayed for many, many, many years. So, at any rate, at some point, I began to play play music, and and. Uh, but, you know, I was super angry. So, you know, I'd play for a while. I couldn't make any headway. I'd throw my instrument across the room. And But at some point, you know, I, after th tossing the instrument around, which was thankfully durable, the thing didn't break. And I started to get a little bit better. And so that kind of led me into, um, into playing music uh, quite often and then eventually professionally. So somehow um, I suffered through the 70s. I get into the 80s. Um, and I, at this point I should also add that, that all this baggage is really taking its toll because really right out of school, I met a woman that I probably should have married. She was my high school sweetheart. I couldn't, I couldn't really even believe that I was dating her, uh, a woman named Valerie who I touched base with about, um, oh, a couple of, about two years ago when I, or two, about three years ago when I bottomed out. And, uh, that was the first time I'd spoke to her in 30 years, but, uh, I was very much in love with her. But by then I had so much baggage that I couldn't express anything. You know, I was, uh, just a shell of the person that I was inside and I was unable to express my feelings or emotions. And so, uh, there was my first, uh, relationship down the tubes because of the baggage that was bothering me. And, and so the drugs and alcohol again came into play and I just stuck with the music and, and so as that progressed, started getting better, played through a series of bands and eventually ended up with a pretty good one. And now I'm a career, I'm a career alcohol and drug user. Um, but by most standards, people, I was kind of had that Keith Richard quality to me. Mm. I could just, uh, I could just keep it going and I could keep it together. You yeah. know, I could keep it together on a certain level. I never got DUIs, never got in trouble, hung around with crazy people, but never got, uh, never got caught up into it, uh, to the extent that I couldn't get out. So, um, were you playing guitar or bass? I was playing bass. Okay. I was playing bass and writing songs. What was the name of the band? Uh, the group that I eventually moved to Los Angeles and um, got a record deal with was a group called Grave Danger. I'd never heard of that band. So did it go anywhere? You know how how far did how how far did the band go? Well, you know that's that's a story that I guess I can dive right into now. Sorry. <laughs> oh no no that's that's okay. Uh, I was going to get to it anyway. Uh, that group, um, it didn't. We had a um, a major label album recorded. At that point, when you get your first album in the industry speak, they would say that you're a baby band. And uh, we had the largest baby band deal that anyone had got at that point in Los Angeles. It was a huge record deal. It was with MCA Universal. And um, we'd got that by virtue of being discovered 
on a uh, large radio station at the time, uh, KNAC Radio, and it was it was the mid '80s, mid to late '80s, and and so it was the era of uh, of Guns N' Roses and Metallica and Van Halen and bands like that, and and so we were we were suffering in obscurity in that scene, and we weren't at the time. There was a lot of uh, what they would call like glam rock and hair metal. Totally. So we really weren't. Yeah, totally. And and we really weren't that. We were uh, we were kind of t-shirt and jeans guys, and and we stuck with it. So we would end up being the first band on a slot, and nobody would be there. And by the time we were finishing playing, the room would start to fill. So that was very frustrating. But somehow through all that, we were discovered by a radio station and a filmmaker named Penelope Spiris, who happened to be a judge in this contest they held. So uh, Penelope Spears made a <clears throat> the decline of the Western civilization movie uh, and movies follow up movies three of those which just came out as a box set they re released and she also you would probably know her from making Wayne's World and a lot of uh-huh. those more Michael's uh, projects so at any rate uh, we got uh, we got a small record deal due to that contest but then that's when the major labels came calling and we signed with MCA Universal we made a record uh, cost an awful lot of money to make took quite a bit of time and quite frankly it was uh, it was really really good i revisited recently i don't listen to it often but it, it it would have been huge and by then you know we had we had started selling out places and we would you know show up at a venue and there would be limousines parked there and there would be a line going you know halfway around the venue and uh, eventually the fire marshal would show up to shut it down because it would be so full and in the limousines would be anywhere from guys from Metallica, guys from Guns N' Roses, guys from Van Halen. You just never knew who was going to show up. And it was very exciting. And they were all really like, you guys are really going to be big. So eventually we got to the point where we were signed up with the Creative Artists Agency, CAA. And uh, we were to go on tour with two of the biggest bands of the era. Uh, we were supposed to go out with ACDC first. And then once that wrapped up, uh, Van Halen was working on a new record. <laughs> they were going to jump on that tour. So, yeah, I, the band was big. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So it was uh, it was it was set to go. And um, quite frankly, again, I mean, I think that and that was the era, too, with those those two bands. Their biggest selling albums happened on that. Those tours were their biggest tours. The Razor's Edge for ACDC was the biggest selling tour they ever did. And the same thing with Van Halen. And it was the era of MTV. So you were just selling insane amounts of records. And uh, that probably would have been three to four years worth of work that uh, didn't end up happening. So anyway, a couple of couple of weeks before the release of the record, uh, which we did with a guy named Michael Wagner, who did Master of Puppets for Metallica, he did Poison, he did Skid Row, he did a lot of the bands of that era, he even worked with Janet Jackson. You, you know, he was like, you guys are going to be huge, but I would strongly suggest that you put this record out as quickly as you can, because I don't trust this label. I mean, he wasn't really too keen on working with them again because of uh, something they had done to Kane Roberts, a guy who played with Alice Cooper, and they'd kind of fucked him over a bit. And Michael wasn't wild about working with him, but he wanted to work with us. And so he went ahead and did the record. But he was he was very clear about the fact that he, he's like, I, I really think you need to put this record out quickly. And I was lobbying to, to wait another quarter so that we would have more money for marketing. And that was a huge mistake. So as luck would have it, uh, there was a person who was the interim head of A&R who was in a contract um, period of time negotiating or renegotiating a new contract with Universal. And uh, the person that was coming into the uh, head of A&R position, her position is normally with soundtracks, 
those two apparently could not get along and it came to a head actually i believe it was uh, at a party uh, at the beverly hills uh four seasons after the grammy awards and a friend of mine who worked at the four seasons called me up and he's like dude your your people got into a very ugly spat last night and i don't know what that what was that about and then first thing in the morning i got a call from penelope spheris and and that was it we were uh we tried to sign with another label, but by then we became what's known as damaged goods in the business. And uh, that was effectively the end of that band's recording career. Oh, so, my that was, God. That's like, like, like a nightmare. It, it, it literally was a nightmare. But it was a great excuse to dive headlong into drugs and alcohol. Oh, yeah. So, Dude, the so pity party. Oh, man. Well, I mean, it was full-blown depression. I mean, because I had literally worked my entire adult life for that. And and that was something like I, when I was a kid reading Rolling Stone magazine and seeing celebrities uh, hanging out at parties, I'm like, I'm going to be at those parties. And then I was. And so it was it, it was a lot to get over. I mean, it was it was traumatic. You know, I, I can't downplay it. it. It threw all of us for a loop and it threw me into about a two year headlong, full blown depression because I, you know, at that point, I've literally invested my entire adult life in that project. And it was three weeks from coming to fruition. So that was a heartbreak. Uh, but unfortunately, instead of going to therapy or finding some more constructive way of dealing with it, I dove headlong into the, the plentiful world of uh, the 80s Los Angeles cocaine epidemic. And um, and that was it. I basically didn't do a whole lot for two years other than snort tons of coke, drive away the girlfriend I was living with at the time, who was wonderful. And... Uh, just just dove headlong into it into a very 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 dark place now you had mentioned uh, when i opened up it says you know you you were a millionaire uh is this pre-millionaire or is this during the million i mean was it the band that was you know where you were making the money or did that come later well, the band, I mean, we were already turning down, you know, publishing and uh, merchandising deals well into the six figures for each of us. But we had uh, made enough money to where I, I had a manager and I had a business manager. And um, so I took the money that I had and I invested in the stock market per my uh, uh, business manager's oh, recommendation. Shit. And I was fortunate because uh, at that point in time, it was the dot-com era was starting. Oh, to OK. OK. All right. All right. Yeah, so it wasn't bad. So in reality, I mean that that just made me a shitload of money. Got and, it. Uh, got it. So you I actually did, rode the the internet wave. Oh yeah, rode it big time. Rode it to great riches too. So I just kept piling away. I didn't take anything out. I wouldn't even touch that, and I just kept uh, reinvesting in everything. And I I made a, a, a awful lot of money in that, and it just kept going. And then at that point, to be honest, I uh, I took a great interest in stocks. I thought, wow, this is really kind of fascinating stuff. And so that was about the time that you started having the wonders of search engines and things like that, and business channels. And so I kind of uh, I took a great interest in that. And, and uh, took an active uh, active participation in my portfolio, and uh, that enhanced it greatly. And and by then I was making a ton of money, and I didn't have to get up for work. I didn't have to go to work. My work was literally getting up in the morning, drinking that beer was laying next to the bed, that warm by now warm beer or two, and then getting up and looking at a ticker tape, making a few phone calls, and that was it. And watching the money roll in. But that is not uh, that is not a lifestyle that is conducive to sobriety or good health. Right. And so again, that just you know between between being a musician and carousing clubs at night, uh, uh, you know, with the likes of Ice T and Billy Idol and all the people that I would see on a nightly basis, 
um, that was just a bad shit nuts lifestyle. But then, uh, from, from that, which, you know, allowed me not to work, uh, then I was by now in the investment world and, and that was the same thing. It just allowed me to tear myself apart and on a nightly basis, get up in the morning, you know, kind of pull it together as best I could after throwing up and, and spending half of the day, uh, with a wicked hangover and then, you know, just rebuilding, uh, for the night to come. And then the night to come would be more of the same and the party just didn't stop. Good Lord. It was crazy. Los Angeles in the 80s. Wow. I was just about to say the absolute, <laughs> the rock and roll cocaine horror story. Oh, I mean, 80s Los Angeles was, it was just insane. <laughs> and and I got to be honest, it was, a, it was a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah, totally. Oh, man. I mean, it was crazy. And, and the thing was, you know, everybody, I mean, you'll read these memoirs, like, say, for example, the Guns N' Roses guys or uh, Nikki Six's excellent book, The Heroin Diaries. I mean, I was in that orbit with those same folks. I mean, I've read those, you know, we literally, the guys in the recovery program, uh, my clients uh, have a penchant for uh, going to the library and getting all those kind of uh, hardcore memoirs memoirs by rock stars right so i've read all the guns and roses ones and i've read nikki's uh, excellent heroin diaries and uh i literally it's like i know that person i know that person i know that person i know all these people it was just crazy and you know again i mean i was hanging around with all those folks on a nightly basis and the drugs and the women just never stopped it was more insane than you know as much as i can talk about it it was much more than that <laughs> so it was a lot of fun but it was again not conducive to uh to acceptable norms of behavior shall we say well, it's a hedonistic lifestyle devoid of any spirituality. It's all ego based, you know, and at the time it's feeding every single, you know, narcissistic bone in our body. You know, how could you, how could you even take a minute to think about the vacuous existence that you have when you are riding the party train of your life? Oh, without question. I mean, there was absolutely, it was morally bankrupt and spiritually devoid. That was a perfect, that's a perfect way to put it. Um, it was, it was all about, uh, it was all about ego driven, egocentric activities, you know, and, uh, they don't call it cock rock for nothing. I mean, it was just nuts. I mean, it, it was total and complete hedonism. Uh, I would, I would have to spend the entire podcast recounting the things that happened in those clubs on a nightly basis that would just blow everybody's mind. I mean, it was an absolute Bacchanalian feast. It was batshit crazy. <laughs> <laughs> that shit nuts. It's it's amazing. And the thing was, unbeknownst to me, you know, deep down underneath all that was was this kid that was the geeky kid that wanted to go to college and wanted to have a family, you know. So but that person had been repressed uh, through through, uh, you know, the lifestyle that I was leading. Uh, the person that I really was, the person that God intended me to be, was buried underneath all that crap, you know. So it was uh, just go out and, and destroy myself on a nightly basis and and never get in touch with the person that I was intended to be and the reason that I was on earth in the first place. So it wasn't until it wasn't until recently that I was able to finally become or at least begin to become the person that I should have always been in the first place. Hence our pre uh, pre interview conversation about returning to school. Correct. So, uh, yeah. So anyway, just to pick up again. So uh, at that point now, uh, the, the band is over. Um, I go into a pretty dark place, but it somehow I managed to get out of that. I go to work where a gentleman named Kevin Lyman, 
he's the you would know him as the creator of the Coachella Festival and the Vans Warped Tour before that. So uh, I began to do production work back in Los Angeles. You know, we would do like the Hollywood Palladium, Hollywood Palace, and then we'd do all the big tours. And so we'd be hired out for those things. And we worked with everybody, you know, Tool, Rage Against Machine, Nine Inch Nails, all these all these great bands, Red yeah. Hot Chili Peppers, you know, you name it. And uh, I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed working for Kevin. And so now I'm starting to kind of finally get out of, uh, starting to pull it together a little bit. I'm backing off on the drugs and alcohol. I'm working on my bass playing and working on my songwriting um, because I had blown some substantial opportunities along the way. And uh, I had had, I believe, a chance at one point to go to work for CAA by a person who was uh, Bob Dylan's rep. And he saw something in me I didn't see in myself. And unfortunately, I squandered those kind of opportunities. But I was trying to pull it together and build a life from it, from the wreckage. So things were going pretty well, and uh, I, we recorded a second record that we funded ourselves. And again, I think that record was really good. But right around that time, uh, oh, and I should also add that a couple of uh, very well-known bands came calling. There was one I was extremely interested in getting with that I didn't, uh, I didn't end up getting audition, but that built a relationship with their manager that eventually led to the possibility of joining a group called Allison Chains. Oh, wow. Bass player. Yeah, whose bass player notoriously died from uh, death by misadventure. Yep. Yeah, well, a friend of mine got that gig. And at first they weren't, you know, they really liked him as a person. They liked his plan. But then once they got in the studio to work on the last Action Hero soundtrack, they were doing a song on that. They were a little unsure. So that's when I got the call. You know, would you be willing to come up and audition if need be? And that's where that relationship uh, from the uh, interest in the Soundgarden gig came up. Um, Mike ended up keeping that gig. He's their current bass player. He's done a great job. And he's made plenty of money in the process. And they were just on the road with Guns N' Roses this last tour or so. So good, good for them. And uh, I finally touched base with Mike on that tour after about 20 years, and that was interesting. He hasn't aged a day, uh, but that's what good living will get you. Yes. He was never that crazy guy. He was never that guy going out and getting shit hammered. So at any rate, so I'm building it back up, but then right around that time, my mom came down with cancer, and I literally had a phone call to change my life. And I had been at the late grade country club in Reseda, uh, seeing Henry Rollins play the night before. And then the next day I woke up to a phone call that my mom had terminal cancer. And that literally within hours took me back to Chicago where I spent nine months watching her pass away from a cancerous brain tumor. And that was, uh, just a horrific experience. And that's kind of when my, what was left of my family kind of fell apart. And shortly after she passed away, my two best friends uh, passed away in short order. One of them was from drugs and alcohol and the other one who was a surgeon passed away from cancer as well. So um, the person that died of uh, drug and alcohol abuse um, was a multimillionaire that lived down in uh, Mexico, right down in the Riviera Maya, as they call it these days, in a place called Acamal. So I spent an awful lot of time down there. And that just got so crazy that I couldn't even go down there anymore. And um, and by now, you know, I'm worth my, you know, more than my share. And, and uh, interestingly, she tried to uh, put me in her will, which would have left me an inheritance of many millions. And uh, I actually turned it down because that's just how crazy I was at that point. I mean, who turns down that kind of money? This is your I, mom. No, this was this was my best friend, one of my two best friends that was a multimillionaire who drank herself to death um, that lived down in Mexico. Uh, oh, and, and yeah. she was going to leave you a fortune. Uh, 
a fortune, uh, a literal fortune, and the, and the house down in Akamal, which is a mansion right on the water, and uh, and it's currently currently for rent for people who are vacationing. I took a look at it recently on the internet, and it's a beautiful place. And I turned all that down. I, I should have just uh, took it and gave it to charity. But <laughs> that's the, again, I mean, it, it can't be overstated how insane. Uh, a life I was leading. I literally was operating in a reality that that is is unfathomable at this point to a sober individual. But there has to be something like, there. What it, somewhere in the subconscious that prevented you from doing that? Was it just the thought that if I get this money, I'm going to kill myself doing drugs and alcohol? I don't deserve it. You know, there has to be something. I mean, you know, what was the first? You know, I'm not taking that. I'm I'm turning it down. What was that? Well, I, I think you just hit the nail on the head. I think it was a combination of all those things. I mean, there's the I don't deserve it uh, component because that was what drove everything. I mean, I was like, you're no good. You don't deserve it. You don't deserve a good life. You don't deserve anything. And that's why you must tear yourself to pieces on a nightly basis. You have to destroy yourself because you are no good. And that, again, goes back to um, core trauma. You know, that's where that's where the family dysfunction, that's where the those, those are the things that lead people deep down uh, dark paths into addiction, because, you know, you have all this unaddressed baggage uh, that you, you know, most likely have not been into therapy. So you haven't sorted through any of that. So it was that. And then the people she was hanging around with by then were, were not people that you would want to associate with. And it just was something I didn't want to get into. And then on top of that, I figured, you know, at that point in time, uh, they were too crazy for me to even hang around with. And they led to her being dead within a few years after them coming out of the woodwork when she uh, inherited all the wealth she had. So I think on some point, your other your other allusion to, to the fact that I thought it would enable me to finally get myself out of the door due to drugs and alcohol and death by excess. Um, I think that was a component of me turning all that down too. But again, I mean, it, it just everything in my life was crazy at that point. It was, it was just nuts. So, wow. yeah, so I got through all that, but, uh, the damage was, you know, the, the damage was piling up and it was taking a toll. And so, after uh, the death of those people, uh, my mom and, and my two best friends, and my two best friends passed away in very short order. And that just led to uh, a ramping up to the next level of addiction and alcoholism. And um, therapy, unfortunately, was was never something that was even considered um, you know, would that I've had someone just say, look, you're a mess, you need to get into therapy, but that didn't happen. So now I'm just ripping through my fortune. I'm I'm not making any good decisions, and everything I'm doing is just going nuts. And and at this point too, I got back into motorcycles, and so now I'm blowing all my money on custom bikes. I'm riding with uh, a lot of really crazy individuals, and that takes me into the, the that world, you know, and the and the world of uh, custom motorcycles and that craziness. That just, you know, I'm riding with uh, the top of the food chain bike designers, but that lifestyle is absolutely crazy. And one of my best friends was a notorious biker in that world, and, and it led him uh, into swerving in, uh, over a double yellow line and hitting another drunk individual down in Florida, and it led him to prison time. And he was a guy who had a, a television show with Spike TV pending. So, I mean, it was just we were all living this life of complete biker excess. So that led me down, you know, I'd had the rock and roll world um, mess me up. And then now I'm in the biker thing. And uh, 
So, you know, when I go out to the garage, I got a couple hundred grand worth of custom bikes out there and we're talking, you know, old uh, Indian Larry style knuckleheads and shovels and things like that and, and things that go super fast like the twin cams. And I'm just into that world uh, completely now. And I'd found a new way to destroy myself. And and at that point, I'm just going through money hand over fist. And I just didn't give a fuck. And um, so it was it was just complete excess. I'd blow all my money to on meals to keep myself relatively healthy. And then in the evening, I would explore the dark world of these towny bars that were just shitholes with drug dealers left and right. And I'm back in my hometown, which is riddled with gangbangers and drug dealers. So basically, I'm spending every evening, you know, sitting at the same seat in the bar night after night after night with a bunch of gangbangers and drug dealers. And and if I'm lucky, a bunch of batshit nuts bikers with their bikes parked outside. So it was just absolute darkness and chaos and, and, and insanity. And I was absolutely out of my mind by that point. So I'm going through my money left and right. And uh, I'll never forget that there was a day I was in a bar. I went to use the ATM to get some money out. And I was down to $120,000. And I thought, this is... I got him down to $120,000. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go all the way down to homelessness. And, you know, it was $120,000. That's a lot of money. But to me, I mean, that was, that was nothing. Yeah, to me, I was broke. And, 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 I, and again, at that moment, I, in the back of my mind, I knew I was going to go all the way down into homelessness. And eventually I got there. Oh, man. Yeah. Pretty crazy. Ooh, crazy. Yep, really crazy. So I finally got there. I've eventually, I'm just making bad decision after one bad decision after another. But and you're not I working, up. right? No, no, no. You're not no. working or anything. You're just spending money like a like a like a beast. You know, just running around the ego, just flying around cocaine, alcohol, women, you know, the same thing every day, you know, repeat, 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 right? Oh, yeah. It's like a bad groundhog day. Yeah. yeah every, everything is just a, a groundhog day of uh, excess and chaos and self-destruction. I mean, that's all it is. It was, it, I was absolutely, by, you know, by that point, I was absolutely miserable, miserable. I hated my life. I hated the life I was living. But, you know, the thing is, you just at that point, it's, you, 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 there's part of you that wishes you could get out of it, but you just don't know how. And I, and I, I think that's uh, something that people don't realize about addiction and alcoholism is that when you're that far in it, uh, you just are, you're not going to get out. You're, you, the only way out is through treatment is through some sort of, uh, intervention, some sort of assistance and to get into a recovery of some sort, be it, uh, you know, if you're lucky, you can just go to a 12 step program or you can go to AA meetings or NA meetings, but if not a full blown uh, recovery for a long period of time, but, um, those things were never considered and no one I knew they were just dropping dead. They, you know, they were, they were living that life excess and no one, no one cared. No one cared about each other. It was just, uh, and it, like you said, it was ego driven and, you know, back to the motorcycle thing. I mean, that's all ego driven. These were all ego driven pursuits. Um, so there's nothing healthy about it. And it, it was just a horrific, bad, it was like a bad record skipping. I mean, it was just terrible. So uh, there was no consideration for, for getting out of it. Um, 
And again, that's where, you know, hopefully people who are not addicts and alcoholics can can have a more healthy uh, empathy for people who are because, again, once you're in it, you're probably going to go all the way down unless you're extremely lucky. You're going to become a low bottom alcoholic or low bottom addict. So that's where I ended up. Uh, the house went, you know, the investment portfolio went away. The, the motorcycles went away. The house went away. Um, I've downsized into a condo that's not mine. And I'm living well beyond my means. And by now, I'm just making insane decisions. And eventually, I end up with no money. And uh, all I'm doing is drinking. And it finally got to the point where I went 12 days without eating. And I'm just trying to drink myself to death. I'm not consciously trying to drink myself to death. But there's no question that that's what I was doing. And um, at that point, I reached out to you know one of the only friends that I had left. Because by now I've trashed every good relationship, every good friend. And uh, I asked a, a former girlfriend in Omaha, Nebraska, if I could come out and stay with her. And there was the longest pregnant pause on the other end of that phone call that I've ever heard. It was, uh, she was not quick to answer. And she was not wild about the idea of me moving out there. But... She took pity on me and let me move to Nebraska, and that's what brought me here. So I came out to uh, Omaha to try to pull it back together. I'll never know how I made the drive from the Chicago area out to Omaha. I got 24, I think it is, miles to uh, DeKalb, Illinois, to a uh, Oasis, and pulled over, got a large Starbucks, and I just thought, I can't do this. I mean, I, it was all I could do to get 20, you know, 24 miles. I mean, I've been two weeks, essentially two weeks without eating. Um, my friend in Omaha had sent me out a little money to get me out there. And I got one or two meals a little bit in me. I had a friend of mine who said he literally saw the, the color come back into my face because I had a gray pallor from, you know, going that long without eating. And it was just pure whiskey. Yeah, pure whiskey and no food. So, um Somehow I made it, uh, by the grace of God, I made it out to Omaha, Nebraska, and uh, took about two weeks to kind of get my health up to where I could look for a job. And I'm a guy who hasn't worked a, a real job in, in quite some time. So uh, I go to work uh, in a uh, in a factory uh, for a Fortune 500 company working in a machine shop like I did when I was fresh out of high school. And that was some real hard work. And uh, production work was steel. And that, uh, in some ways was a bit of a blessing because it kind of got me to the point where, you know, I could, I was doing, it was physical. So my physicality was getting better and I was actually sober. One of the conditions of moving out here was my friend that I was staying with was like, you, uh, you cannot, you cannot drink. And when I say drink, you I mean, not only can you not drink in my house, I, you cannot drink if you're going to stay with me, that's the conditions. Right. And, you know, so, so, um, three or four months into that, uh, that job was not a treat. And there's a long story that goes with that, um, that essentially led me to a workplace, uh, uh, injury. I basically got heat stroke on the job and I won't get too far into that. We get too far afield if I do, but, um, it, uh, you know, eventually things got pretty rough over there and, uh, that kind of led me to, um, eventually, uh, drinking, having the occasional drink. And by then I met a girlfriend, uh, who's talked about by a different name in the book. And, uh, I moved in with her 
and she drank and that got me back into drinking and she kept whiskey around and, and I liked whiskey when I would uh, do my, uh, my nightly, um, uh, part in our festivities, shall we say, adult uh, conjugal festivities. So, um, <laughs> you know, the whiskey would fuel that. And uh, whiskey whiskey was my Achilles heel in that regard. I like to get my growl on. So uh, anyway, eventually that kind of sucked me back into, you know, sucked me back into the alcoholism. And uh, that situation was uh, really bad. And uh, that's best read about in the book Street Life Fragments that'll be coming out in, with any luck in May, but it'll come out at some point. And uh, that uh, kind of chronicles that picks up from exactly that point. And uh, so essentially the book Street Life Fragments takes you into uh, it begins with the ending of that relationship with that person. Ah, and so, okay. right, right. So at that point, um, I'm, uh, um, I'm being escorted out of my house by half a dozen police officers who are armed and pointing weapons at me. Um, that woman had gotten an order of protection against me unbeknownst to me. And, uh, that was essentially her way of breaking up with me. So it came to, came to light once it went to court that I was not the first person that was, uh, visited with this, uh, way of breaking up and the judge admonished that person for exactly that. So there was no basis for it, but by the same token, now I'm on the street literally and, um, things just get really crazy. And then from there, I, um, uh, I'm, I'm sleeping in my car uh, but I've called together enough money to keep my booze thing going. And, um, I, um, <clears throat> I, uh, have a friend of mine who was a, a notorious security guy in Omaha, a former Marine who went to Bosnia at 17 and he put me up for a couple of weeks, gave me a couple of weeks, kind of get my shit together, which of course I didn't, but that led me into what he termed the great bender of aught 12. And during the great bender of Aught 12, I took drinking whiskey to a level uh, the which I'd, I'd never been. It was Jim Morrison-like in its, uh, in its uh, epic nature. And I think at this time, if it's okay with you, I'd like to read a little bit about that as best I can from the book. Go for it. Okay. So um, at this point, I'm staying with my friend Sean in a section eight place in, in downtown uh, Omaha. And, and I've been through three huge handles of whiskey in short order. And I'm getting to the point where I've just never, I've never been drunk at that level. And, um, so here we go. When I escape the apartment to grab another bottle, it's like leaving a movie theater and finding daylight times become a metaphor for something that happens elsewhere, signaling nothing unrelated. I've been drinking for four days now. The guy behind the counter takes the handle of Jameson and scans it with one of those sensors that draws a spinning red laser globe over the barcode. I hand him a 20 and I tell him to keep the penny. It's 2476, he says. I pull out another five and I put the quarter in my pocket. I smoke a cigarette in the snow and I walk back to Sean's. Must be around noon. Cars head downtown captained by well-dressed and sober, probably for a nice fat meal people. No one will bother to check the price of because they won't need to. How many of them will sleep in their cars tonight? Back to the apartment and the putrid smells of Sean's bunker. It's like he brought Bosnia back to America. 
The urgency and fear of battle invades his taxpayer-funded hovel, deranging the natural human aversion to filth. When you're under fire, there are more important things than cleaning. What matters are the strength of the walls and the safety of your comrades. Your own well-being can go to hell. After a few days, I get to feeling like I'm in the bunker too. The only thing missing is the gunfire. Sean still hears it though. He screams in his sleep. Night terrors, worse than nightmares. His screams jolt me from the couch where I take naps and half sleeps whenever my head throws the room into spin cycle, meaning that I'm shit hammered at that point. Sometimes his dreams get so bad that I have to leave. I walk a mile past windows in the Douglas County Jail to get down to the old market, searching for what? Everything. At one point, I travel so far I'm not even in Omaha at all, but Chicago, stumbling up the sidewalk to my old girlfriend Trang's house to see if she'll take me back. It's been almost a decade, and I'm still hooked. I ring the doorbell. A stranger in a yellow security t-shirt opens. Oh, hello, I say. I walk into a noisy, full of burnt Nicaraguan tobacco leaf and leather shoes, looking for the love of my life across a sea of heads and faces. It must be one hell of a party. A band's playing in the corner. Men smoke cigars. Waitresses veer between the tables and hand out drinks and scribble orders. I have questions. I'm too fucked up to ask. When did Trang install a walk-in humidor? Why is there a cash register? When did that, uh, where did that Havana garage sign come from? The house sure has changed. So at that point, I'm so shit hammered that I've been just literally, you know, thinking that, that I'm back in Chicago and what really was happening is I'm drunk on my ass. So that was, I guess that's a, a way of kind of summing up how, what a blackout would be like. It's more like a, it's more like a brownout. Because, you know, you, you, you remember it, right? Well, I mean, I guess there's a, it was what I used to refer to as a brownout, but now I'm not so sure because <laughs> after, uh, after hearing Sarah Heppola, who has an excellent book, uh, her blackout book, um, I don't know if you're familiar with her. Yes. She's an, she is fantastic. That book is fantastic. Yes. And the way she describes a blackout is what we would describe as a, bl- a brownout. It's, I guess, blackout, brownout. It's, yeah, uh, it's a matter of exactly <laughs> you are fucked up. Oh boy, it's just a matter <laughs> of semantics. But the the thing is, you know, you know, I guess in that regard, uh, that's why I kind of sum it up, like you know, in the way that I did, just to give you an idea of what it's like. Um, so anyway, I pick up from there. It's like uh, nine days later, I re-enter the world. Now I'm really truly broke. What the fuck is wrong with me? How dumb can you get? I've never been this bad before. When I was young, I lived to party, get drunk, snort coke, smoke pot, play loud, and fuck chicks. The kind of drinking I'm doing now is different. Self-devouring and ugly. More sinister. Painful. And mature in a bad way. The way a tumor starts as a harmless gathering of aberrant cells and matures into something that will kill you if you don't get help. And even if you do, no guarantees. Yeah. Yeah. That was crazy. So that's, that was where I'm at now. Now at that point I'm homeless. I've went from millionaire to homeless person. Mission accomplished. Wow, man. That is just, uh, like I said, it's a, it's a, your Hollywood rock star cocaine rock bottom story. Yep. 
Yeah. And they all end the same. Oh, boy. You know, there's there's no escaping it, and there's no way out of it for, for many of us until absolute, until you just absolutely hit rock bottom. And then, you, you yeah. know, you're, you're out of money, and it's the only reason why you stop. You're either out of money or you're dead. Or you're arrested, jails, institutions, and death. But uh, for you, it was just this crazy roller coaster ride. So then, what was it? Because you, at, at some point, at this at this particular stage in the game, you could have either killed yourself, but you chose differently. So what was that that rock bottom moment that brought you to recovery? So at that point, I'm living in my car and. Uh, I'm I'm still going to like uh, I'm going to little art art openings, uh, gallery openings, things like that, and I kind of got this reputation for pulling out uh, this little fifty dollar pawn shop camera that I had, and people started noticing that I took good pictures. And then at some point, uh, I'm now I'm living in my car, literally. I'm homeless. I'm going days and days and days without eating. Um, it was nothing for me to go six, seven days without eating. It was just a, almost a, a badge of honor to know that I could do it. And I walked by people in restaurants down the old market of Omaha and see that they were having these fabulous meals that I used to have. And now I'm a guy who's taking pride in the fact that I could go days without eating. So it was pretty warped. But um, at some point, I uh, and there's a story behind it, but I began to, I finally crossed the precipice to where the homeless folks that I would, uh, encounter as I was homeless, I began to talk to them and, and ask their permission to take photographs. And so that's when I began to take the, the photos that would, uh, kind of get me out of my car inevitably. But in the meantime, I literally got to the point where I was, uh, I was, at the very end. I mean, I was contemplating things that are unspeakable and, um, I had lost all hope. I mean, I was a godless, hopeless mess. And, uh, a man named Bob Schellenberg, who I met once prior through an introduction from a friend took pity on me and, uh, got me off the street. He had seen my photographs. He had read, uh, by then I was writing about my exploits and that was getting attention. And he took me and gave me the opportunity to, to get off the street. And I'm forever grateful to him. Uh, it's just one of those things where it kind of restored my faith in humanity. Like who does that? Right. And he was, uh, yeah, you know what I mean? And he was, a, he was a lifelong educator and just a great man. And he, he is a great man. And, um, if it weren't for him, I don't know what it would have happened, but, uh, you know, God, uh, works miracles if you let him. And, um, you know, they say the, uh, uh, St. Augustine said the absence of, uh, or evil is the absence of good. And at, at that point I pushed everything good out of my life, but apparently Bob had other ideas and God worked through him. So, uh, I got off the street and that allowed me to continue to, by now, you know, my story's getting out there. And, um, so, uh, I ended up on, uh, on television, uh, through, uh, another story I won't get into, but that exposed people that I was homeless and, uh, that didn't know. And, uh, along the way, um, uh, a man named, uh, Morong Chiang, who's the head of the Asian world center at Creighton university, uh, arranged for me to have a photographic show of my photos. And that put me on the front page of the local papers. And then that's what ultimately led to the book deal. Uh, loyal as a Jesuit university in Creighton is as well. And so that's what led to that. And that's inevitably what led me to, to finally, uh, after long last, 
getting into uh, a treatment program in Omaha's uh, Sienna Francis House Homeless Shelter. It's called the Miracles Program, and it was a miracle. Uh, it was a blessing for me, and it, it, it was definitely, definitely a miracle that I was ever able to walk in those doors. When you walk in the doors of a homeless shelter, at first it's it's kind of terrifying when you know that that's where you you know your life has led you. You've went from being a, a wealthy person to walking in uh, late at night into a homeless shelter, a wet homeless shelter, which is meaning that people who are intoxicated are, are welcome, and that that's where life has taken you. That's where your exploits have taken you. You know, it's one day you're hanging out with Johnny Depp, and the next day you're in a homeless shelter, and that's that's where I ended up. But uh, it was a good thing because um, it part of uh, being in the Miracles program is that you are uh, working with the homeless population as you're in your recovery program. And by the time I walked in the door, I had surrendered. I was 100% ready. And uh, when you ask your final questions uh, later, um, I'll touch upon uh, how God kind of entered my life. But uh, that took me to that uh, homeless shelter, to that recovery program. But it also allowed me to be of service to others. And that that was uh, provided me with a lot of strength and then ultimately led me to what I do today, which is uh, working in recovery. What a miracle, man. Like, what a crazy story, bro. Like, seriously, man. Like, wow. <laughs> Yeah, I know, isn't it? Isn't it? And you know, and I unfortunately I had to live through it to uh, to get a book out of it. I wouldn't recommend it as a as a subject matter, but that's kind of how we got where it got. But uh, yeah, it uh, uh, as I say, uh, live through this. Well, good luck. Yeah, and you had so many challenges. What I kept waiting to hear is that at some point. You know, somebody's going to pick you up to play bass in one of the bands, right? Like at some point, why doesn't that shift? Yeah, the brand, the band breaks up, but you can still play bass. It wasn't in the cards. It just was not in the cards for you to be in the in in the in the business. And plus, if you did find your way, you'd be one of those casualties of war. There's no way you would have made it out of there alive if you were part of those bands. If you were Keith Richards, so to speak, right? Because there's only one Keith Richards. And and then also when you think about just starting from the beginning, where you're adopted, right? Yes. You're adopted, and you know you're molested in high school, and back in a time where people, like you say, they don't discuss these things. They don't want to discuss these things either. You're too ashamed to discuss it, or you've already blocked it away. And then if you do say something, people are so uncomfortable with the idea that they just want to push it under the rug somehow. Oh, for sure. Yeah, guilt and shame. I mean, guilt and shame. Absolutely. So you tell your parents about this, and they're like, no, 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 you must be wrong. No, 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 maybe you're overreacting. Oh, well, honestly, in my case, I mean, I never even said anything about it. I was I was so ashamed and felt guilty. I felt like I, you, know, you just, you're so confused. When when you're molested, you're so confused that you don't you don't know what just happened, or I mean, you can, you know, but then you quickly build your defense mechanisms and repress it. In my case, uh, and it just was never. I didn't discuss that with my mom until I was in my early 30s. That's when I remembered it. I mean, I literally repressed that memory for years. You know what's what's uh, I guess ironic or funny, or however you want to talk, whatever you want to say. The last three interviews I've had have been with people that were adopted. And, and and look at where you had where you end up. However, you want to look at it. At some point, you say, you know, what was wrong with me? You know, why? You know, what happened? Why am I adopted? Why am I different? You know, and and, and so there's so many things that lead up to this kind of sort of ambiguous existence. 
that you try, you know, you try your best to figure it out and, and, and you rack your brain and then you find drugs and you're like, wow, I don't have to rack my brains anymore. It all makes sense. And all the, all the chatter goes away and all the, the insecurity and all the guilt, all the shame, it's gone. Give me some more of this stuff. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's the coping mechanism. And, and especially at that age too, when you're in, when you're in high school, um, that's when you need to develop those social skills and develop coping mechanisms to develop these healthy things that, that, uh, normal adults, uh, take with them into adulthood, um, and are able to live a functioning, healthy life. So you're not developing the skills that you need, um, at that point. And that's why, uh, weed, I mean, there's studies that have been done that, you know, individuals who were smoking weed prior to age 15 or around that age, it's doing uh, damage to the hippocampus and the brain. I mean, permanent damage, uh, rewiring the brain. So it's, um, yeah, uh, it's just crazy. Um, but again, you know, the, uh, abandonment issues are, are, are very powerful and, uh, core trauma. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And so when you were out in the streets and you were, you know, taking these photographs, how long were you out in the streets taking these photographs before you actually got noticed? Um, well, I was, I was on the street for about a year. Ooh, wow. I know. And that sleeping in the car, I was lucky to have a car because I don't know what I would have done, but, uh, sleeping in the car in the middle of the winter, in Omaha, Nebraska, a town that you are not familiar with, having just moved there, is uh, it's it's a very dark place. It's a very lonely, godless, dark place. And uh, I prayed and prayed, but it I just wasn't connecting. Uh, unbeknownst to me, of course, God was already working in my favor by virtue of the photographs, and and they were so powerful, and the stories were powerful, and the fact that the the individuals I was uh, photographing. Uh, and talking to, you know, we truly made a connection. So they're unlike uh, a lot of photographs that you might see of uh, of the homeless population because these are people that I was legitimately uh, friends with and, and many of whom I continue to uh, be friends with. So um, uh, they have a special quality to them that's unusual. Of course, of course. Now, are there any ones in particular that come to mind you know, while you were out there and, you know, meeting these people, interviewing these people, talking to these people, uh, was there one in particular that, that you'll never forget or uh, had a, a significant impact while you were out in the streets? Um, I could say there are several. Um, there are three that immediately uh, come to mind. Uh, one of them was uh, a person who, during a drug-induced haze, was uh, violated and um, molested, sodomized, and uh, he um, got uh, AIDS from that uh, encounter. And that was uh, covered in Matthew Hansen's story in the World Herald, the cover story. And uh, yeah, that was uh, that was a heartbreaker. A really nice kid, um, not unlike. Um, many of the people that I work with currently, um, just, uh, a really nice kid. And, but, uh, yeah, he, he got a, uh, HIV out of the deal. Uh, there was another gentleman who came from, uh, Somalia or Sudan, I think it was from Somalia, uh, who was involved in, uh, you know, their, their child warriors at that point. And then there's so much, uh, war torn strife going on that a lot of them uh, end up in Nebraska, uh, some of them in Lincoln, some of them in Omaha as refugees. And, um, he, uh, 
he had sustained a, an injury, a, a head injury that has um, diminished him quite a bit. And I never, I would see, I didn't know his story, but I would see him kind of bouncing around uh, North Omaha and some pretty rough places that I would um, be in the course of uh, talking to people and, and taking photographs. And while I was homeless and I thought, man, that, uh, that guy's a mess. And, and I kind of had made up my mind that I would never photograph him. It was just too heartbreaking to see. But then one day, uh, as luck would have it, he kind of walked up to me and asked me for a cigarette. And that's when I talked to him and I took a photograph of him that ended up on the front page. And that, uh, that photograph is very powerful and his story is very powerful. He was a bit of a hero in a, in a group called the lost boys that are uh, these Somali uh, refugees and, uh, and, and they look after him, but, uh, you know, again, his, his story doesn't end well. And there was another gentleman uh, named Anthony who's from Trinidad who may or may not be on the cover of the book. And I, I would see him around uh, downtown Omaha, and he and I became very good friends. And he's just a really, really nice man from Trinidad. And uh, I just enjoyed his company greatly. And um, and I think that he eventually drifted back out to New York City. But, uh, yeah, they, they, every person that I've photographed and talked to has a unique story. And, and they're all uh, they're all people. They're all people with a, a past and a story. And oftentimes um, homeless folks are just uh, people who are one life away. You know, I'd like to say that people oftentimes are one life event away from being homeless. What a beautiful story, man. Just an absolute beautiful story. And it's completely divinely guided. Your whole life up to this moment has just been a series of, you know, God guiding you through this thing and every experience that you've had um, has been necessary as your journey. Because if it wasn't, you would have gone a different route. You know, you, there's so many, especially being in that sort of an industry, there's so many opportunities that come your way. You knew so many people. The network is massive. And uh, to end up in the streets, it was just that was where you needed to be. And now moving forward, gosh, this, I mean, how old are you now? Uh, I'll be 56 April 1st. So it's like you're 56 and th this is the beginning. It this literally is, is. Right? Literally is. Life, life, essentially, in, in, in some capacities, it began, uh, began at 50, but essentially began at uh, just prior to 54. And uh, because at this point, I can be the person that God intended me to be. This is apparently the person that uh, that the reason I was put on earth was to be of service to others uh, in some way, shape or form. So be it through um, showing individuals in poverty and homelessness as, as people, people who uh, need help and people who are not unlike uh, people who are not homeless or whether it's to work with addicts and alcoholics. Um, it's, it's very satisfying to be of service to others. And, 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 and speaking of the, the homeless uh, experience, I'd like to read just a tiny bit more for you, if I may. Please. If you have somebody to wander around with, you can look at the moon on a cold birthday and not feel 238,900 miles away. You can wander around by yourself if you want. And for as long as you like as long as somebody's waiting for you back home. That's why when you're in a band, traveling couch to couch in flats where windowsills and kitchen tables and toilet lids microscopically dusted with cocaine serve as accidental pillows 
to the falling consciousness. Such a life feels fine. And your friends are there. They're your friends. Your friends will never let you down. You're all young and beautiful on a riot campaign to burn the world. Everything feels good, and the moon is a huge friend in the sky egging you on. Other days, later days, when it's only you and your mind and no home to return to, the moon's just a shitty empty lighthouse. I'm going to live through this. I'm not going to live through this. How will I survive? I don't know, but I'm going to make it. <sighs> I almost feel like closing with that. <laughs> it, it, it would be a good like place to close. Yeah, sure. right. That is such a strong close. Oh, man. Well, it, works, this, it works for me. That view, that book of yours. Uh, yeah, it was it was uh, meant to be written. It was meant to be read. And uh, it's going to help a lot of people. And you're absolutely right. Uh, you have a purpose here and it wasn't to kill yourself or live a life of vacuous debauchery. You know, it was to take everything that has happened to you and help others and be of service. It's the same, it's the same calling I have. It's the same reason why, you know, I'm on this podcast. I'm doing this podcast. Um, you're a very active member in the Facebook, the share private accountability group. And I really appreciate that. You know, I love having you in there and it's what makes this thing work each other. We cannot do this thing alone. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's the fellowship. And, and again, thank you very much for, for all you do. Um, your podcasts just mean the world to me. Uh, again, I, I'm not able to get to meetings as often as I like due to my work and due to the hours that I work. And so for me, uh, recovery podcasting is a, is a great service and your, uh, podcast in particular is, a is a great example of that. And the recovery, uh, accountability group on Facebook is a great place for people to be. It's a fellowship and people can help each other through these issues so we can do it together. Yes, no question about it. And the, the important thing is that's one of the reasons why I put it out there because people like yourself that depending on where you live or depending on you know the accessibility you have to meetings, it, it becomes a challenge. So putting on the headsets and listening, if you were able to go to a speaker meeting every single day, I mean, some of the most powerful meetings I've been to our, our speaker meetings where people are telling their story and you're listening to the grit and the grind and the wreckage. And you're like, man, I get it. I so get it. And you leave, you leave that meeting feeling 10 feet tall. Oh, without question. Yeah. You feel the connection, you feel the connection and it's inspiring and it, and it gives you uh, experience, strength and hope. And that's so essential. And, and again, just like you said, if you're uh, fortunate enough to have some headphones, just just putting those headphones on and going into that world, going into another person's story, just gives you that experience, strength, and hope that that, that will really power you through because it, it it shows that this can be done and that this is, you know, this is a highly doable thing. It it can be very difficult at times, um, and that's why I'm very proud of the clients that I work with who are working their way through their recovery process. It is it is a journey that's very rewarding and it's well worth the the uh, extraordinary uh, fortitude that it takes to um, to get out the other side. But once you're there, you know, you're the person that God intended, to, intended uh, you to be. Hands down. Absolutely. Sam, what's the best way for our listeners to find you and reach out to you? Well, uh, they can find me also on Facebook. Um, I have a, a page for the book, Street Life Fragments, 
which kind of refers to the fragmented timeline. It's a it's a type of modern literature, and uh, it it kind of serves a purpose with regard to the photographs being fragments of my experience. So you can find me at Street Life Fragments on Facebook. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, feel free. Anyone anyone out there who's struggling, they can feel free to reach uh, reach out to me. And uh, and I know they're able to go to the accountability group and join that. A couple of my clients have already done that. I'm going to make sure to have that on the show notes, folks. So check it out. Go to the show notes. Click on the link. That's where you can find Sam. All right, Sam, let's start closing up for the newcomer. Are you ready? I am ready, Omar. Okay, five questions coming at you to inspire the newcomer. Let's do this. Number one, what was keeping you from getting clean or staying clean when you first got introduced to recovery? Um, I think as we talked about earlier, I think uh, it's it's guilt, shame, and fear. Guilt and shame that um, keep you from working a healthy process, a healthy recovery, a healthy way of working through uh, resolving the core issues that led you down the dark path that you may have walked down or been uh, cast into. And then uh, just the fear of living a different life, a fear of change, um, uh, a fear of uh, having to address those issues, you know, without chemical, uh, um, illegal chemical assistance or uh, unduly acquired chemical assistance. Now, if you end up in a recovery program and you're uh, needing uh to uh, take some help, uh, legitimate help through uh, the pharmaceutical industry, that's fine. Uh, but the combination of uh, working a 12-step program, uh, we do a lot of uh, DBT, uh, DBT, CBT um, medication, and uh, 12-step uh, healthy, healthy eating, a healthy diet, um, exercise. These are all components of an effective uh, recovery program. So for me, it was, it was guilt, shame, and fear, I would say. Yes. And that's what keeps so many of us that absolute terror of what is my life going to be like when I'm not intoxicated? Like all the pain that, that's associated, you know, that it prevents us, you know, from even for one moment to be off of, of the narcotics. Um, and also a good point about a healthy lifestyle. That's another thing that takes work. Eating right, exercise, sleeping well, taking care of yourself takes work. And so many of us are lazy. You know, we've been taking drugs for so long that instant gratification. If I want to be up, I take something. If I want to go down, I take something and I don't have to work for it, you know, but to actually change your lifestyle, that's where the work comes in. I think it's a very important component when we're coming in initially that, that even though all, all the most important thing is you stop doing drugs and alcohol, those, the, the, the sleeping and the diet are so key. Oh, it's, yeah, it's just the beginning, you know, getting, getting sober and getting off drugs and alcohol, uh, are just the beginning. It's, it's, it's things like DBT skills, 12 step, uh, meetings, uh, those are essential. And then the next component of course is the exercise and diet, you know, modifying, getting that sugar out of your diet, getting to a more plant-based diet. Uh, however you do it, just staying away from the fast food, beginning to become conscious of what you're eating and putting into your body, beginning to treat your body right because it's mind body spirit absolutely yep what is dbt and cbt well um cbt is cognitive behavioral therapy and dbt is an offshoot of it um it was created for um initially uh, marshall anahan created it for uh, uh, people with uh, certain disorders uh, borderline personality disorder uh, most notably 
DBT is dialectical behavioral therapy. It's uh, essentially gives you tools to to work through um, work through all uh, manner of things in in a more effective manner, as opposed to um, ways that are not uh, helpful. Okay, so it's behavioral therapy. Exactly. Okay. All right. Excellent. And number two, at what point did you have a spiritual awakening, that aha moment in recovery when you accepted that you were powerless over drugs and alcohol, but for the first time had developed the hope that you could recover? Well, uh, <laughs> this is an interesting story. When I had that moment, I was sitting in a, um, in a bar not far from the homeless shelter in Omaha called the Happy Bar. <laughs> It, uh, I can assure you, it is not a happy place. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I mean, think about it. The happy bar. That's where I hit my bottom. But uh, literally, I had been, I had been, uh, I'd, I was so, I'd, I'd been to um, detox at Campus for Hope in Omaha, uh, which is now actually um, uh, the detox program has moved, um, is taken over by the um, University uh, uh, of Nebraska Medical Center, I believe. And the company that I work for, Centerpoint, we've actually taken uh, over the recovery services from Catholic Charities at that uh, location, which is right by the homeless shelter, which is literally at the end of uh, that street. It's dead ends right into uh, the detox. And uh, so I was there a couple times detoxing and I, and the people there took an interest in me, the techs and everybody took a great interest in me because I think they knew that I really, truly wanted to, wanted to get better. Um, but I was struggling, you know, I just, I relapsed a couple of times and I was having a tough time of it, but I was really trying and eventually got there. But, uh, I was self detoxing. I was too embarrassed to go back to campus. I was too embarrassed to go back to the hospital. And I detoxed in a hotel room where I had hit my bottom, where I ended up literally walking out of that hotel room with 50 bucks in my pocket, heading to the homeless shelter. So I ended up, uh, I had to go to a, uh, a Walmart to uh, pick up some money. Somebody had uh, generously bought some photographic prints in order to, to keep me in that hotel. I went up there to pick up, uh, uh, pick up the money, and I was a wreck. I was shaking in a manner. I was having uh, um, delirium tremens in a manner that you, you just wouldn't believe. My, I could not illustrate for you how badly my sh- hands were shaking uh, in a way that would it's just unbelievable. So I decided to give myself a break and go ahead and, and put a little, put a little booze into my body because I was really afraid I was going to have a seizure at that point. So after I went, collected the money, I stopped into the happy bar and, uh, it was late afternoon. I sat in the bar and at that point, um, there's only a handful of guys in there, a couple of flight controllers from uh, nearby Epley airport. And, uh, um, ConAgra executive type people that would just saunter in there and have a couple quick cocktails and some healthy conversation, watch a little bit of uh, stock market returns, and then go ahead and leave that place. And it, it's actually kind of a cute place. It's old, uh, old, old place from the, like the 20s or 40s or something that's grandfathered in, and it's like walking back in time. And uh, so we had some, uh, you know, erudite individuals had some decent conversation, but um, I stayed in there. Uh, somehow I managed to get the whiskey. I should have just asked for a straw because my hands were shaking so badly that I literally could not. The first shot of whiskey, I could not get to my mouth. And it was kind of embarrassing. And I think the bartender even took notice of it to the point where he kind of turned his head away enough so that I could let my shaking hands kind of get it to my mouth as I was spilling it all over the place. But I managed to get a little booze in me and start to have the shaking go away and the DTs. And um, so I spent a couple hours in there talking to people, but as they filtered out and the new clientele filtered in, 
um, it was bad. And the guy that was sitting next to me had went from being a kind of collegiate professorial type of uh, guy with uh, intelligent conversation to being a raving maniac uh, singing along with the jukebox and very much out of pitch. So that was, uh, that was not pleasant and not a pleasant experience. And uh, you've, you've never, you've never lived till you've uh, endured the Eagles endlessly being butchered by a drunk in the happy barn on Nebraska near a home shelter. It's something that I would not wish on, on anyone. But uh, during that moment, I, there was a sliver of mirror below the high definition television and the booze bottles. And in that sliver of mirror, I could see myself for exactly who I was. <sighs> I was a middle-aged train wreck, unhealthy. I, I looked like shit. The guy next to me was drunk out of his mind, acting insane. And as bad as it was at that moment, I knew it could get worse. And at that point, I literally broke down and prayed in the bar, not out loud, but to myself. I, I, I'd never, you know, I'd had my questions with religion and spirituality up to that point, but, um, I prayed in a way I'd never prayed before. And I prayed to God. I said, please let the old me die tonight and the new be me be reward, uh, reborn tomorrow. If you're willing, if you'll keep me alive this last night, please, please, um, remove this obsession. And, uh, well, that was when it happened. I mean, I, I, I prayed from the bottom of my heart and uh, my prayers were answered and I have not. And this is amazing. I have literally not had urge to drink since then. That was the last drink you had. That was the last drink I had in the happy bar in the happy bar. Wow. And it ended up actually being kind of a happy bar. <laughs> in a sense, it was. <laughs> In a sense, it was. But you know what? That is, man, that's powerful. More power. Your story is just unbelievable. You know, it is, it is a book. There's no question about it. Um, but you know, I've had that same experience that drop to your knees, whether you're on your knees or not, you know, that absolute, you know, irreprehensible demoralization. You're sitting in that moment and you're beaten. You are absolutely beaten. And all you have left is just to pray to a God that you have not prayed to in a very long time, but like differently, not like the, oh, get, get me out of this, you know, make my house stop racing. You know, I promise I'm not going to get high tomorrow. You know, the usual bullshit. Uh, but when you, when you actually, when you hit that, when you hit that bottom and you ask for help, it's amazing how God just, he just, just comes in with all the troops, man. It's amazing. It is. It really is. And the thing is, too, that uh, no matter no matter how you couch uh, your um, higher power and spirituality, um, no matter how uh, you choose to look at it and embrace it, um, it's 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 always there for you. It's like a force uh, that will always move for the better in your life uh, once you acknowledge it and accept it. But you just kind of have to get out of the way and let it take its course because it, you know, God is, however you refer to it, if God is uh, the, the term you care to use, as many uh, do, God is always there for you. You just pushed it away. You pushed, you pushed God away. God has always been there for you. Amen, brother. Oh, could not agree HP, more. baby. HP, HP. baby. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I don't throw that enough in the interviews as I should. I got to put some more HP babies in there because it's true. Your story is HP, baby. Fantastic. HP, baby. <laughs> 
All right. So what, <clears throat> number three, do you have a favorite book you would recommend to a newcomer that you read in early recovery? Well, uh, I've got a few recommendations. Now, the first one is not necessarily for a newcomer, um, although I think anyone could uh, could get something out of it. For newcomers, I think obviously the big book of yes. Alcoholics Anonymous, when you finish reading it for the first time, um, read it a second time. When you finish it a second time, read it a third time. It'll never get old. It'll never stop serving you. So that's what I would recommend to the newcomer. But for people who just enjoy reading and enjoy recovery and who love the recovery lifestyle, um, a book that I would highly recommend by a great author uh, named Nick Flynn is a book called Another Bullshit Night in Suck City. Um, <laughs> it, it also has another title. Uh, it was made into a movie with uh, Paul Dano and Robert De Niro. Just a fantastic movie, and Nick's uh, wife, Lily Taylor, the actress, makes an appearance in it, and uh, he makes an appearance, a little cameo, and I didn't know what he looked like, but I watched the movie, and there was an AA meeting in the movie, and I, there was a guy in it, and I said, that's Nick Flynn, and sure enough, it was, so he makes a quick appearance, but uh, that movie, Being Flynn, which comes from the book Another Bullshit Night in Suck City, is just a great movie, and it, it involves homelessness and, and alcoholism addiction, and uh, it's basically Nick's journey through uh, dealing with um, his family issues and his relation, complex relationship with his father, who ends up being homeless. Nick ends up working in a homeless shelter in Boston, and uh, it's a true story, and uh, Nick's father ends up at that homeless shelter, and they end up uh, reuniting, and um, he, he addresses his issues uh, that he had had with addiction and alcoholism uh, during the course of the book, but he is just a world-class, phenomenal writer beyond any description I could give. One of my favorite authors, and I think that book is very noteworthy. And then uh, some of the books that your uh, most recent guest uh, mentioned, uh, Dry and Drinking a Love Story, um, I'd highly recommend uh, those to people who just love to read and love the recovery lifestyle. Those are great books. And then... Um, there's uh, there's also a book by a gentleman, uh, he's, he has several books, but uh, a book by a gentleman that works up at Hazleton called Broken, My Story of Addiction and Redemption by William Cope, Cope Moyers, Bill Moyers' son. I think that's uh, a fantastic read. Beautiful, beautiful. These are great suggestions. Thank you, Sam. You're very welcome, Omar. Beautiful. All right, so number four, what is the best suggestion you have ever received? Boy, there's so many, but uh, uh, I guess suit up and show up, you know, just 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 get it together and uh, be consistent. Stick with your recovery. Stick with the program, whatever program that may be that works with uh, for you and just maintain that discipline. Uh, be active in your recovery. Um, and I guess uh, being active in your recovery is a, another piece of advice that I received Uh I, I wouldn't have anything more specific than that, but just uh, find what works for you and and make it make it your life, make it a, a integral part of your uh, daily life. Beautiful. And then number five, if you could give our newcomers only one suggestion, what would that be? Oh boy, one suggestion. I, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and uh, narrow it down to go to a meeting. You know, <laughs> go to a meeting. Do, do, do whatever it takes. Get help. You know, get help no, no matter where you find it. Connect with some sort of resources and, and, and get help. Beautiful. And stick with it. Stick with it. You can do it. You know, that's the thing. You can, I, I did it. 
uh, and you can do it. Anyone that hears my voice during the course of this or yours, you can, you can do this. It, 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 it's challenging and it's the most rewarding thing you'll ever do. There's no question about it. No question about it. Sam, wow. Thank you so much for joining us. Your story is absolutely amazing. Thank you for having me, Omar. I really appreciate it. It's been an honor, brother. It's been an honor. I can't wait for this one to launch. For this one to launch, it's awesome. Oh, by the way, I'm going to need uh, a few pictures from you. I want to put those okay. on the show notes. Some of your some of your favorites. <laughs> uh, absolutely, I'd be happy to do that. Well, thank thank you so much, Omar. It's been absolutely a pleasure. I'm a big fan of the podcast. I'm a big fan of all the all the work you do. Your uh, service to the recovery community is immense and and notable and laudable. Well, like I like to say, it's an honor and a privilege to be of service and HP, baby. <laughs> HB, baby. <laughs> All right, we have now reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Pura Vida. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.